Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader podcast. So good to be with you. And today I'm going to share with you uh, actually a message that I gave just last week at the commencement of Asbury Theological Seminary. And a friend of mine who went to school with, who is the president of that seminary, asked me to speak on the five hardest lessons I've learned since graduating seminary, the five hardest lessons I've learned since graduating seminary. So it gave me some time to reflect on that. Actually, I gave a similar talk at the commencement of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, from which I graduated 15 years ago. Uh, And it was so fascinating to step back and uh, look at where I am today. Uh, And there were some similarities and, of course, some differences as well as I've grown and matured a bit. But before I launch into this uh, very timely and important message on this podcast, I want to invite you, uh, as I did last week, to the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship Master Class that I'm doing uh, in the month of June. Uh, A master class on emotionally discipleship, the book I wrote um, about a year and a half ago, that really provides for pastors and leaders the unique biblical contribution of EHD to creating a culture and a church uh, and a discipleship and a leadership formation track that deeply transforms, uh, not just superficially. And really, the way I approach the class is it's four two-hour classes, uh, and it's everything I could not include in the book itself, uh, just because it would be a thousand pages. So get into themes like be before you do, follow the crucified, not the Americanized Jesus, embrace God's gift of limits, um, et cetera, et cetera, you know, embracing weakness and vulnerability, but trying to get at it uh, underneath even the surface of what's written there. Then I actually combine it with the Emotionally Healthy Leader book, the final four chapters of how do you apply all this theology to planning and decision-making, power and wise boundaries, creating healthy teams and culture and transitions. Uh, and we'll do case studies in it uh, as well as some Q&A. So it's actually a tremendous introduction uh, as well as a great follow-up to, the, to really the depth theologically of what's underneath Emotionally Healthy Discipleship as an entire ministry. So again, go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash masterclass. That's emotionallyhealthy.org slash masterclass. And I'll be teaching it live. Uh, and you can sign up. And uh, I think you'll be very glad you did it. Love to see you there. All right, let's dive into our theme today, which is the five hardest lessons I've learned since graduating seminary. Now, it's been uh, almost 40 years, 38 years to be exact, uh, since I graduated. And I was well aware the seminary was fantastic, loved it, uh, so appreciated learning languages and theology and the history of the church. Um, And I really was equipped in a lot of very helpful ways. And prior to that, I'd been on InterVarsity staff uh, for three years, uh, helping plant Christian fellowships uh, here in the United States. And I used to feel like while I was in seminary, I was just learning so much and like drinking from a fire hydrant. I I really loved it. I I was a bit drained when it was over, uh, but I was aware that there was still a lot to learn. So we graduated and and Jerry uh, and I moved to uh, Costa Rica, spent a year there learning Spanish, and then moved back to Queens, New York, uh, city at that point, and uh, spent a year working in a Spanish church, teaching in a Spanish seminary in the city here, and then eventually planted New Life Fellowship Church in uh, 1987. Again, a very multiracial church, as many of you know, uh, in an area with 123 nations in it, and it was a. We were very committed to 
uh, bridging racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers, but it was very much an international, uh, multicultural, multiracial context. And uh, the church grew very rapidly in the early years, and uh, we planted four other churches as well. Uh, and But by year six and seven, I hit a wall and was exhausted, uh, winning the world, losing my soul. Uh, we had a split in one of our congregations. I found myself uh, in a, my own crisis, angry and depressed and furious when 200 people left. And then, of course, my marriage wasn't going well, and Jerry was tired of being a single mom, and she quit the church. So God had my full attention then. Uh, but God met us uh, in an extraordinary way, uh, and uh, I had no idea that there were some very hard lessons that he wanted to teach me uh, and that I needed to learn, and lessons that would transform me personally in my relationship with God, with myself, my marriage, uh, of course, in parenting, our four daughters, and then our leadership team, and then the entire church. Uh, and uh, so I've loved, really, my last 20, almost, now it's almost 27 years, uh, I've loved everything about life. I, it's been like the world went from black and white to color. And I've loved pastoring and leading. Uh, and there is a different way to do this. Uh, Ephesians 4, equipping God's people uh, for service in the world. Uh, it just has, there are some things you just need to learn. So these are my hard lessons. Of course, you would have your own. And I've chosen these five because they came out of great pain at uh, a failure and setbacks over decades uh, these are lessons I wish I had heard and learned much earlier uh, in my ministry and uh, lessons I wish someone had helped me understand. And so when I was speaking just last week to these uh, graduates and somewhere, uh, you know, all different types of graduates from PhD level to MDiv, MA, you know, all kinds of folks, but I wish lessons I wish I had heard uh, that I could at least pondered and begun to work on before I hit the wall. So let's dive into them. Uh, and I offer them to you uh, today. The first is this. First hardest lesson that I learned since graduating seminary was that your first most important work is to be with God. That your first most important work is to, is to be with God as a contemplative. Now, our evangelical tradition, uh, or at least the church as it operates, and this is actually Orthodox churches, Roman Catholic churches, as well as uh, Protestant churches, um, and our, our stream in particular has a great richness of mission, leading people to Jesus, um, equipping people for the work of the ministry, helping them discover their gifts, a great love for scripture, passion for planting churches, all good. Uh, tremendous emphasis on, on the gospel of grace. But our great weakness is slow, is stillness, is silence, is reflection. And so as a result, we've got churches filled with people who are living off other people's spirituality, living life on the run, who are scattered and fragmented and uncentered, exhausted, overwhelmed by life, much like the culture, with a lot of head theology, uh, listening to lots of messages, but not a lot has actually entered deep into their interior being. So they know God is good intellectually, but when things go badly, uh, they flip out. And so I was overwhelmed or over-focused on doing uh, for most of my early years as, as a Christ follower, uh, I was much like Martha in the story of Mary and Martha, Luke 10. I was distracted. I was anxious. I was upset over many things. And I was working for Jesus, but I was missing Jesus. Uh, and I was like Martha. Uh, her prayer life was telling Jesus, tell Mar Mary to help me, because Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening. And uh, so I was, I would say I was marked uh, 
my Christian life, my life in general, by having too much to do and too little time, rushing, pressure, ignoring the signs in my body that was screaming out, uh, you know, slow down. I was fearful about the future. And basically all the models that I had up to that point uh, were doing, doing, doing machines. And so since that's all that I observed, of course, I just naturally did it. Uh, and if I if you take the story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10, which has been, been talked about all through church history in every generation, how do you balance being with God and doing for God? Being with God like Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to what he's saying. And Jesus says, she has chosen the better part. And Ma- Mary, Martha is doing, she's active serving Jesus. And we're both Mary and Martha's. Um, but Martha is just uh, a, a great example, I think, how most of us still live, because her being with Jesus is not sufficient for her doing for Jesus. And God's intention is that we're active, yes, but that activity is permeated by a stillness and a contemplative, slow-down being with Jesus, that we're remembering him and abiding in him and flowing in him all through the day as we're active doing stuff. So the most loving thing that you can do for your relationship with, the most loving thing you can do for everybody around you uh, and for the people you serve is to cultivate your walk with God. Uh, I'll say it again, it's so important. The most loving thing you can do for everybody around you is to slow it down, to cultivate your life in God. You cannot give what you do not possess. You can only give what you do possess. The state you are in is the state you give to other people. And who you are is far more important than what you do. I, my invitation, and I think our invitation as EH Discipleship to leaders around the world is that the desert fathers and mothers of the third, fourth, and fifth centuries provide for us a model of what we need to do today uh, in our frenetic 21st century culture. And that is we need to flee the world and flee the worldliness in the church. And as they fled to the deserts of Egypt and North Africa, Uh, In that day, we need to flee and create our own desert to get to God, to be with God in the midst of the franticness around us. But they understood themselves, the desert fathers and mothers, as following the ancient path of Moses, Elijah, and John the Baptist to the desert. And we need to make a similar radical decision, uh, not just simply to add another spiritual discipline to our lives, but to end our addiction, not so much to drugs or alcohol, but to being doing machines that is overcommitted and hurried. So we need to go outside our tradition to learn from Desert Fathers and Mothers to the monastic traditions, the 1500 years of the, of the church, the first 1500 years of the church, uh, to learn from people quite different from us. But my exposure uh, until my late 30s was actually uh, primarily to Reformation up towards today, from the 1500s up. Um, uh, and we miss so much of scripture as a result of the riches of our genogram, of our history of the church that is found in those first 1,500 years. And so uh, very critical things to how do I be with God uh, as my most important work. There are things we talk a lot about in EH Discipleship, and I, and I share them with you here just to mention them briefly to hopefully whet your appetite, and that is slowing down by being with God by integrating the daily office. That is pausing to be with God three to four times a day, not just once a day. And not to get something from God, but to be with God. Our goal is to commune with him all through the day. But daily office is about deeply integrating silence and stillness along with scripture. 
Then there's Sabbath keeping, that spiritual formation practice to stop every week for a 24-hour period to, to, as, a, as really a, to stop, to rest, to delight, and to see God in the midst of the miracle of life. Uh, we're talking about an act of rebellion, that my identity is not in what I do, it's in my being with God, and so I can rest. Sabbath. And then there's sabbaticals, taking longer periods of time. Uh, if you're doing this vocationally, as many of you are who listen to this podcast, uh, you need every seven or eight years a sabbatical, a longer Sabbath over three to four months to actually let the soil of your soul rest so God can replenish the nutrients of your soil so you can be giving out a lot out of your overflow of your cup. And then there's learning and developing a rule of life as a structure for your days, months, and years uh, so that you're receiving the love of God out of which you're giving it out. And uh, we've talked quite about that in the podcast. You can check it out on the transformational, team transformational videos on our website, how to, to cultivate a rule of life. And again, we forget that in the second to the seventh centuries, most of the greatest pastors and leaders, often referred to as the doctors of the church, people like Athanasius and Gregory of Nazianus and Basel and Ambrose and Jerome, etc., and Augustine, they were first monks being with God in a life of prayer. And their leadership flowed from that superabundance, uh, an experience with Jesus of a cup that overflows. That's our first lesson, hardest lesson, to be with God. That's our most important work. But that can't be separated from the second lesson, which is to know yourself and to be yourself. Second hardest lesson I had to learn was to be myself, not somebody else. And that, again, that's closely related to the first. You can't separate separate knowing God and knowing yourself. I did for for years. Uh, know yourself that you may know God. They, they're inseparable. And, and just interesting is that in their early, you know, church history, they were, they were not separated. And people like, you know, Teresa of Avila used to say almost all problems in a spiritual life stem from a lack of self-knowledge. And Evagrius uh, from the fourth century, you want to know God, he would say, first know yourself. Because knowing yourself uh, and knowing God are, again, are inseparable. Think of David in 1 Samuel 17. David knows himself and he knows God. He's able, and he's, he's able to break from the culture around him. Saul and the armies of Israel had a certain way of fighting battles, but he knows as he goes up against Goliath, that's not who God made him to be. And he knows himself. He's a shepherd. He knows slingshots. He knows, he knows stones. And so he doesn't wear Saul's armor. He just goes and he, he knows God and he, and he charges Goliath with his little slingshot uh, and his few sto- smooth stones you know, from the stream. And even though his family had put him down, and even though Saul said, you can't do this, you're only a boy, and Goliath says, I'm going to eat you up and spit you out, uh, he's just being himself and uh, in God. And he charges, and he, and he not only breaks through for himself, he breaks through for the whole country, is set free. But he's a beautiful example. He, he breaks through for the whole nation of Israel. And then out of that, he, he leads them into a whole new expression of worship and of the grace of God. And a whole new era enters into uh, Israel's history as a people of God because he's able to break from, in a sense, build on the mosaic tradition that had been there for hundreds of years of the way they worshiped and a bit more formal and lead them into a spontaneity and freedom of dancing and singers and instruments. That was just amazing. And the world we live in today needs you, and the church needs you, uh, to step out and be yourself, who God uniquely made you to be, to do the kind of hard work in your interior life so God can, you can hear God and you, God can flow through you, and you might contextualize the gospel in creative ways for your family, for your community, for your church, those you serve, out of your true self in Christ, like David did. I spent the early years of my leadership 
trying to copy other people, other leaders, and build the kind of ministries they were building. Uh, I'd go to conferences and try to imitate people. Not that we don't learn from folks. It's good to learn from people, other people. Uh, but out of that, we've got to listen to what's God have for me in that. And I was overly sensitive to people's expectations of me and their plans for my life. I just didn't know myself. I didn't even know that was important. I was just told, told to know God, know God, know God, and that it couldn't trust yourself anyway. So, you know, there was two verses that were quoted a lot to me in my early days uh, that caused me to deeply distrust anything going on from my insides. And that was from Romans 7, in you dwelleth no good thing. And the other was from Jeremiah 17, that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And uh, it, was a, it was an imbalanced theology um, of depravity. Uh, not that we're not sinful human beings, which we are, but we're also at the same time made in the image of God. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, and, and, and God lives inside of us by the Holy Spirit. That's the whole point of Pentecost. Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended to the Father so the Holy Spirit could live inside of sinful human beings as God would remove our sin through the righteousness and the crucifixion of Jesus. That's the great news of the gospel. So they're, they're both true. Yes, uh, I am sinful at the same time. I'm also a saint, and God has, there is, there is good in me. Uh, because I'm made in his image and Christ died for me. And so I can listen to God from inside of me. He's coming by the Holy Spirit inside of me. So again, I, I spent many years, early years, wasted out of a false self trying to be somebody I wasn't. And, and I wore, as May Sarton says in one of her poems, I wore other people's faces. And I got into a lot of trouble by not living the life God had given me. That's why EH Discipleship saved my life uh, when I got into this uh, 27 years ago, because I began to, to discover and listen to how God actually had uniquely made me. Started listening to my feelings, started to feel, and uh, how the Holy Spirit was coming through my desolations and consolation. I began to embrace and look at my story, my family of origin, and uh, from traumas to weaknesses to vulnerabilities to strengths, uh, I began to be reflective, uh, look at my motives, and uh, Etc. It was just it was a, it was a radical integration to be myself and let okay, God out of all the human beings on the earth you put me here for a short period to offer something to the world in the name of Jesus and what does it look like for me to live that out in Jesus uh, I, I love it I'll close this section with Augustine said it well in the year four hundred how can you draw close to God when you're far from your own self okay so that's the second lesson be yourself. Uh, oh wait, one last thing. I I, I, I like when, when you know Parker Palmer said years ago. He says, "When I give something I do not possess, I give a false and dangerous gift because it looks like love, but really it's not." Uh, and because our calling comes from uh, uh, not willfulness, willing uh, willfulness making it happen. It comes from listening to the unique life God has given us. God's got a dream for your life. He really does. Um, and in a sense, our calling is to discern that dream and offer it back to God out of gratitude to him. Uh, and again, that my, one of my favorite Hasidic uh, sayings is, the end of your life, God will not ask you, why were you not Moses? He will ask you, why were you not you? That's a much more challenging way to go. And uh, so we can trust and rest in his righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, not our own, his record, not our record, his past, not our own, as we step out uh, to be ourselves. The third hardest lesson, it was another really hard one to learn uh, because I, I used to violate this all the time, which was to embrace God's gift 
of limits. The third hardest lesson was embrace God's gifts of limits. I hated limits. I still don't like them, but uh, I, I bought into Western culture, which is bigger, better, faster, up and to the right, uh, breakthrough limits, live a limitless life, life, limit limitless life. And I so often went beyond what God was asking me to do. I was willful. I was powering through. I had zero theology of limits. Um, I realized at the end of my life, I could be working for God, doing work for God that he never asked me to do. And I could present to God at the end of my life, here's this church of X number of people. And God said, I never asked you to build a church that size. Well, God, I did it for you. He goes, well, you did it for you, P2. It wasn't just for me. It was all mixed in. But violating those limits, I got into all kinds of trouble. But there's such a biblical rich theology of limits. Going back to the Garden of Eden, uh, when our first parents are placed in the garden, and God says, eat from any tree in the garden, but there's one tree do not eat from it, the, gar- the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God puts a limit. And it was Robert Barron um, who talked about, he's a theologian, about how you can't separate the rebellion of Adam and Eve against God from their refusal to embrace the rhythms that God had put in front of them, the limit of, yes, you're to work, but you're to stop. Uh, you're, you're, you're to embrace the limit of not eating from that tree, even though God never explains it. But they violate that limit and all kinds of chaos breaks up. In. And, and Jesus, the second Adam in the wilderness, also was confronted with limits uh, by the evil one. And he's invited three times to, to, to basically cross God's limit of his God's timetable and turn stones to bread, jump down from the temple, get everybody saved immediately. Um, but he embraces the father's timetable and he waits and he embraces gifts of limits. And I love John the Baptist. It changed my life. John the Baptist, who, when his ministry begins to decline and everyone starts going over to Jesus, and he's basically told to get jealous of Jesus because your ministry is declining, John the Baptist says, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. He embraced his limits, um, changed my life. So you're surrounded by limits, and so am I. Your time on earth, your gifts, your ability, your temperament, your personality, your family of origin, you name it. Uh, they're limits, but they're a gift. They ground us. They teach us wisdom. Uh, they guide us. Uh, their invitation is to trust in the goodness of God. He really is good. His ways are higher than our ways. The wisdom and the depth of the knowledge of God, he's really got everything in control. So again, next time someone says to you, I know you're really busy, just say, no, no, I'm just limited. The fourth hardest lesson uh builds on this as well and because this one will slow you down and that is this uh the the love really is the mark of true spirituality that love really is the mark of a true and mature spirituality uh you would think come on pete and you know that uh i knew it and i didn't know it uh, i'd memorized the first corinthians 13 i took a exegesis class in the original greek uh for 30 hours uh on first corinthians uh, but I didn't get it. Uh, I was too busy building, uh, reach, leading people to Christ, growing in zeal and knowledge of Scripture and anointing and learning skills and making it happen, all this external stuff. And very sadly, uh, my own wife didn't feel loved by me or valued by me. Uh, and that's when it all came crashing down because I loved her, but she didn't feel it. Uh, I was just, I was too preoccupied. I don't think our team did either, uh, that I was leading. The people closest to me, I was, I didn't know how to be present. Uh, I was always on to the next thing, uh, next project, next next goal, next thing to do. 
And I'm embarrassed to say I somehow lost my way. I was growing in love for God as a Jesus follower, or at least I thought I was, but I wasn't growing in love for people. I didn't see discipleship as growing in God and growing in love for people. Uh, they're inseparable. And that was Jesus' whole point, wasn't it, with the Pharisees and Sadducees, that they didn't, they didn't get it, that you can't separate loving God from loving people. And they asked Jesus for one great commandment. He said, I give you two, love God and love people. And that's why the Pharisees and Sadducees, he, he was always critiquing them. He goes, go and learn what the prophets were saying. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That was the great clash, that love, and God, love for God and mercy and approachability and safety and warmth for people are inseparable. Mercy is what it's all about. That's why I just didn't see it. I just lost my way. And um, that's why the saying, you know, one of the core axioms of uh, what we say here in this podcast and EH Discipleship is that emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It's not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And that's why we have spent uh, more than a quarter of a, a century, over 25 years developing uh, emotionally healthy relationship skills uh, because we're so intent on bringing discipleship of how to love people uh, to the church because we never got it. And it was almost a disaster that loving God and loving people are inseparable. And that's why the Emotionally Healthy Relationships course exists. And we brought it down to eight core skills uh, around a theology, things like clean fighting and how to speak clearly and respectfully, how to listen well, Etc. Etc. These are core skills we need to integrate our spirituality into, and I've been deeply influenced by Martin Buber's work uh, about being present, not distracted; about being loving, not judgmental; about being open to learn from others and changed by other people, not simply closed. The beautiful thing again in this great fourth lesson is it will slow you down to actually catch up with God, and it'll change the way you measure what is spiritual maturity. My fifth and final hard lesson is this. Relax. God is equally present in failure as well as success. Relax. God is equally present in failure as well as success. Again, I wasn't relaxed, and I sure had success all mixed up, but what is success? When Jesus, they asked Jesus, what, is, what must we do to do the work that God requires? He says, the work of God is this to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus says there's only one work that really matters, and that is trusting in Jesus, trusting in the one the Father has sent. And as uh, Bruner says, the, the scholar, the one, probably the best modern translation for trusting in Jesus is relaxing in Jesus, allowing ourselves to be held by Jesus. That's our first work. It's being with Jesus. Uh, and we forget we can relax because apparently the greatest failure in in Human history was the crucifixion of Jesus, God himself in the flesh, and yet it was the greatest moment of success in human history because it brought the salvation of the world. I just didn't understand this lesson that God is equally present in failure as well as, quote, success. And because I didn't get this, again, I went ahead of God more times than I care to admit. Everything from planting churches too fast to launching initiatives before it was time uh, to hiring people, you name it. I just And I didn't see God as present in my failures and setbacks and dark nights and disappointments. And yet these were the moments of great, greatest advance of the gospel in me, the greatest transformation in me and the ministries I was leading. And I learned that things are not as they appear. Relax. God is equally present in failure as well as success. And so often what looks great 
is is not great. What looks like a blessing is not so much a blessing. What looks terrible in the short run is actually a great gift. And if God had answered all my prayers in my early years, it would have been a disaster. God really is equally present in things that look like failure uh, as he is when things look like a success. That's a great lesson. It was a hard lesson to learn. So relax. I invite you to relax. John 6, verse 29, trusting Jesus. That's that's our work. And let go of all your attachments to everything in this world and things that we, we're holding on to. So it was, that's called surrender, open hand, not clenched fist before God. That's why silence is so important so that Jesus can be birthed in us. And then we want to listen to Jesus. Matthew 17, listen to him instead of making our own plans. Let's make three boots. It makes sense. I can see how the, the ministry could advance. I know you have lots of plans on how God's work can advance in the world and what he should be doing. But you know what? Relax, let go of your attachments. God's bigger than you. And let's listen to Jesus and his timetable. God is so much bigger than we think. He really has the whole universe in his grip. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. As it says in Revelation, he is the Lord God Almighty. So I leave you with these five hard lessons. Your first most important work is to be with God, that is to be a contemplative. Secondly, be yourself. Thirdly, embrace God's gift of limits. Fourthly, love really is the mark of a true mature spirituality. And fifthly, relax. God is equally present in failure as well as success. So just pause for a moment and ask yourself, take a deep breath. Which one of these is most significant or God's coming to me today. So again, let me invite you as we close here to our masterclass, go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash masterclass. Check it out next month. Even if you can't make it at the time it's offered, you can get, you'll get the videos and you can watch it at your own uh, discretion, at your own free time uh, over the next month or two. So let me close with a Hasidic rabbi uh, truth that he said on his deathbed that I offer to you that's been a source of inspiration and grounding for me over the years. And he said this, when I was young, I set out to change the world. When I grew a little older, I perceived this was too ambitious, so I set out to change my state. This too, I realized was too ambitious, so I set out to change my town. When I realized I could not even do this, I tried to change my family. And now as an old man, I know that I should have started by changing myself. If I'd started with myself, maybe then I wouldn't have succeeded in changing my family, the town, or even the state. And who knows, maybe even the world. God bless everyone. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.